Hello everyone and welcome to Golden Walkman Magazine. My name is David Walker, bringing you the final issue of 2017. All in all, for the magazine, not a bad year. Can't say the same for the world itself, but in general, um, I'm just happy to maybe, hopefully, be a brighter spot, uh, a part of a brighter spot in the world um, that is, a, is doing a service of bringing fine literature and new literature and giving a voice to people who may not necessarily have a voice, usually. So, yes, that is that is what I see the duty of this work being. Um, and anyway, uh, this is a best of. This is our push cart prize nominations. So it's packed with amazing, amazing stuff. And um, before I get into that, though, I, I really want to say a huge thank you to the other editor of the magazine, Joey Gould, who I think has brought the quality of this magazine higher and higher. And if you've noticed a change in the quality of stuff, it's it's ma mainly because of him. I also want to thank you, the listener, for giving this some sort of meaning. Um, not sure how many of you are out there, but um, even if it's one person, thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And of course, I want to thank our contributors, not just the contributors that are in this particular Pushcart Prize nominations issue, but um, all our contributors and the contributors that are to come in 2018 and beyond. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Um, let's get to it. it. This this is a little bit different. It's it's kind of like a, uh, a beautiful mixtape of, of great literature. And um, the reason I say that is because basically I've put in the original, my introduction to the work and then the work itself. I've taken out the analysis sections, but um, yeah, it's it's gonna be great. So it's a little messy, it's a little interesting, but it's, it's all great. So uh, enjoy all this. Um, what we have here is we have work from Natalie Wussaker. We have work from Tanya Thompson. We have work from Devin Murphy. We have work from Christopher Hopkins. We have work from Jennifer DeBillis, and we have work from Gabriella Garofalo. So, really great stuff. Uh, huge range. It goes from like the beginning of the year to our most recent issue, and um, yeah, I hope I hope you enjoy this look back on it, and we'll see you in 2018. It's a wonderful story. Sometimes you read a story and you're not exactly sure why you love it so much. You're just swept up in the language of it and the beauty of what's unfolding in front of you. And that's what happened with this story. I'm not exactly sure, piece by piece by piece, exactly what's happening in this story. But at the end of the day, I really don't care because I, I really love this story a lot. So I hope you enjoy it as much as we did. Um, and it is... Natalie Wissaker's story, Reflections on My Talk with Hagaral. Sorry if I butchered that. Reflections on My Talk with Hagaral by Natalie Wissaker. After pancakes this morning, made for a friend to say thank you for letting me use his car, and then later when he took me to the bike shop 
and uttered the name of my ex-lover, Marche, to the bicycle technician. I'm having a lot of mixed feelings. Before I get out of my friend's car, he puts his hand on my shoulder. The weight of his palm stirs up the confusion I've lately been feeling since Marche's exit, though my friend is unaware that I've tried him out in love's image when he touches me. His gesture is fleeting and I struggle to hold eye contact. He is gentle and doesn't notice my uneasiness in the moment. We say goodbye twice through the open window and I run to my front door on North Roman Street, ducking beneath the tree branches that hang so low above the path since it's gotten warmer. I fumble momentarily to find the right key. My vulnerability asks to be felt before I can perform tasks, and so I stand on the stoop for a moment, softening. The sound of traffic on Claiborne Avenue is slow. The I-10 overpass offers lazy punctuation. A heavy sigh escapes as I unlock the shutter. Brown shade and morning's wet heat subdue my senses. I've gotten into the habit of greeting my house when I enter, a practice that endears me to the structure, like acknowledging an old friend. And by the time I make it down the hall with the light blue ceiling, past the mismatched furniture of the dark living room where I flick on the fan switch, and into the small and messy kitchen where remnants of spelt flour tell the story of where I've been. I'm thoroughly aware that something is not right. Wanting what I don't have begins as a denseness in my chest, leaking gray liquid that will eventually come to pool in my feet. I'm learning not to reject this feeling of dulled anxiety and instead to hold it in such a way that the feeling and I have no secrets from each other. Last week, I met with Hagaral at a nearby cafe after work to have an overdue conversation outside of the chaos of weekly band practice. As trusted a confidant as she's become to me, our ensemble is compartmentalized by the role you play and communication is not always possible between these thresholds. It's so good to see you, dude. I have so much to tell you. My memory of first meeting Hagaral is unlike film footage playback. The event has become a singular image, etched and printed onto my mind's eye. I tell the story of how we came to know one another, like the old Sean No storytellers of Ireland, wandering the land until another story could provide a meal and a bed. Our tale is part of the collective mythology of New Orleans, where shape-shifting can happen far removed from carnival season. A stranger is due at my house to borrow a spare bicycle. Someone knocks, so I unlock the front door in two places and swing open the shutter to reveal the goddess, Callie, 
surrounded by the neighborhood children. Her dark blue skin radiates white light and she is silent. Her eyes tell me to prepare and the children all begin to speak at once. They are inquisitive about me, who I am and what my house looks like inside. They do not fear the garland of human heads that Callie wears around her neck, nor the blood-smeared sickle she holds in her right hand. The youngest ones ask me why I don't come out when they play games on my stoop. Many months later, I'll dream of them running down the hall that day, shrieking with curious excitement, leaping up the stairs two at a time to the attic, playing hide-and-seek in the bright, hexagonal edition off the living room. An hour or so into our talk, Hagaral brings up the concepts of stillness and waiting, the active and passive iterations of allowing. I forget all the time, she says, while my eyes dart back and forth between her brown eyes and red lipstick that being still in between moments of big action is how transformation finds us. Inside that stillness, that not doing, not trying, we are getting ready to receive what we're not yet ready to receive. She takes a sip of her half-calf and I smile with admiration at her tolerance for outdoor seating and hot coffee in late June the Pinot Grigio I ordered on a whim and drink too quickly flushes my cheeks. The world beyond our table is beginning to vignette, softening at the edges and losing saturation. And what's been lately buried is starting to come to the surface of my skin. Something has been eating me alive, teasing me where I can't reach to scratch and I've been going crazy with the absence of doing, not knowing where to go or how to begin to relax into allowing. The practice of emotionally leaning back was first introduced to me from a video I found online about meditation. I was a grad student living in Ireland, pursuing a degree in socially engaged art that challenged the very core of who I was becoming. The physical act of leaning back on my yoga mat with the intention of only being here now made me aware of the 45 degree angle that had become my neutral posture. Ever searching, ever forward moving onto the next task, the next challenge, the next cup of tea. What overwhelming relief I felt when I was shown how to simply bear witness to my emotions in addition to feeling them wholeheartedly like a mother observing her child. Hagaral's own easy posture at the cafe that evening contrasted with the tension, the tightness in my own lower back, causing me to shift and adjust to accommodate the discomfort. I try to mimic her angles, one knee up, the other leg slightly askew beneath her chair. Her left hand holds her cup of coffee on the table 
and her right arm is fully extended and balanced on her knee. A cigarette she rolled a few minutes earlier has lost its light between her fingers. Talks like this, uninhibited, conscious and vulnerable, with people like Hagaral, honest, devoted yet detached, make me aware of my own capacity for encountering the radiant, unfathomable spectrum of emotional experience that once eluded me. After I'd become a master of art, I'd also become very numb. The colors that I learned to correspond with the different chakras or energy stations of my body began to melt into one another, amplified and muted in equal parts. When the Irish winter proved almost too much for my flimsy Floridian tolerance for cold, I began to notice this subtle shift. First, the color red swelled from my pelvis, filling my legs. It warmed the orange hue behind my belly to look like sunset instead of citrus, and the yellow of my solar plexus completely fell away. Doubt was given free reign to elongate mornings spent in bed, trapped between listless sheets, dreaming of the days when the sun used to wake me up, vowing to stay swaddled until the weather got better. Then, in complimentary fashion, the disappearance of yellow began to influence the blue that once coated my throat. Unable to speak in plain truths, I surrendered my autonomy to others, whose voices were pointed, sharp, and forceful. A couple of years later, I would fantasize about my mouth becoming a fountain that overflows with blue light. A year before that, I would teach myself to sing. In late summer, when my program had ended, and the blackberries were coming back, but wouldn't fully ripen until I'd already gone home. I took a trip to Ireland's Atlantic coast with some friends. We picked salty sea spinach by the handful on the path that led to the beach. The sky was overcast, though the breeze was warm. The golden gray light allowed us to see great distances across the water to remote islands with mossy limestone ruins and names like Ross Dohan and Skellig. I observed the magic of this day as if I was looking down on its players through a clouded window. I could not house those emotions in my body. I could only relate to them as if they were a mist that I could step inside but not feel. As difficult as it's been since then to warm the sensation back into my awareness, joy has always been there as the color green. Indigo steeped knowing and lemon yellow life purpose are new companions since my arrival in New Orleans. Green joy looks like early summer's grasses, but heart sickness is also green, mossy, or sometimes like sea glass. 
What I felt this morning in the kitchen after pancakes and the trip to the bike shop was pale olive. Standing in the kitchen, my hand is like an anchor resting on the table. Feeling the quiet of flesh on wood reminds me that breathing is an involuntary miracle. Even when the breath is sticky and clings to the ribs, tightening the jaw. I'm staring across the table at Hagaral, chin resting in my palm, when she says, I have to remind myself that longing for shit that isn't here is most likely the same thing as asking for this gift that I'm not ready to receive. I laugh at this forgotten truth, realizing I've been in the chokehold of acute longing. We're honing our ability to sit intimately with uncertainty to feel every nuanced change in texture, temperature, contour, and hue. Marchette and I once talked over dinner about our individual experiences with darkness. He said that an astrologer recently told him that he would soon come to know the darker aspects of humanity. I've had an easy life, he said, setting down his fork, shoulders relaxed. I haven't spent much time outside of the light. We were in great contrast at that moment. I looked down at my hand in my lap, pausing generously before finding his gaze and responding. My path has been shrouded these last few years in a thick, often impenetrable, cloak of night. I cut away another bite of asparagus and the knife made a loud clink that seemed to echo through the house. He looked at me with fearful admiration, wide-eyed and silent. It seemed to me then that the tender equality we'd begun to cultivate as new lovers had been struck by lightning and a cavern now divided us. My borrowed bed frame was recently reclaimed and I've been sleeping on a mattress on the floor. So close to the earth, I bathe every night in the steam that rises up from the hot ground beneath the hardwood and I feel like I'm always right in the thick of it, this psycho-spiritual one-pot meal. The charcoal memory of Marche holds me in those moments when I feel a little too uneasy yet to switch off the light. But I've come to acknowledge that longing does not define me or make me whole. Lying completely still with uncertainty, a practice so agonizing that I'm beginning to commune with the holiest parts of myself this is where you can find me if I don't answer when you call. Our second poem today is from Tanya Thompson, and it's titled Strum and Lull. And the reason why we were drawn to this poem in particular was, again, the connection I'm seeing between these, these poems is the naturalistic imagery made grand by the message that is 
being sent um, in the poems. So again, this is another one that I'm just realizing has that sort of echo of the previous poem in which these natural scenery, the, the, the nature, is, is given this grand message. Um, again, I'm not feeling very elaborate today, but uh, I hope this makes sense to people. Uh, but anyway, here it is. You make your own opinion of it. Tanya Thompson's Strum and Lull. This is Tanya Thompson reading my poem, Strum and Lull. Sky shifts between downpour and the blue of an eye. At night, Ursa, taut and fierce, elopes with vast errant dreams, while skyscrapers gash clouds. The fen waits with its lace of moss and fern and willow, velvet and fingered and lightly touching mud. Hues of green echo in thick water, ripple to the strum and lull of wind. Ocean pushes pearly surf to shore, recalls and recycles. The imam and his isms brood, while novas shock the void with their light, then return to obscurity. A small girl touches what she thinks of as the tibia of a tree, says, blood is green carried by pulpy veins, Body is mind holding ground and sky together. This she knows. Eden is ravens, flying S's while the sky, agape, looks on. The reason why we were so drawn to both of these stories, actually, is Ryan Dunham's voice throughout, throughout it. Uh, he has a very humorous style and a different way of looking at things, but there's also a real heart to each of the stories. They both accomplish the goals that each of the stories set out to do, and, and um, we were really drawn to the craft of the stories. So I hope you enjoy. First off, we're going to hear six inches. We'll hear a little bit of a pause, and then we'll hear the wheel. So enjoy this, Ryan Dunham's Stories. Six Inches by Ryan Dunham It's not enough. Try to convince them that it's wrong. Try to convince them that the dimensions are not correct. Jesus, Dolt! Try to convince her it's Dolterman. Jeffrey Dolterman. Hillary walks over and curls her fingers over the polished oak. Why are you buying a coffin? You're 26. I ask the coffin salesman to shut the lid. Block me off from the world. Seal my fate. I don't know what's wrong with him. She's trying to convince the coffin salesman that I'm insane. She's trying to convince him that I'm on drugs. More muffled gargling. The lid opens and fluorescent lights shine into my face. They reflect off the so-called comforting powder-white cushions. Five more minutes. I grab the oak door and trap myself beneath six feet of air. Above the vacuum, asbestos, 
crossbeams, electrics, plumbing, ventilation. Above that, questions I'll stop asking when this contraption is beneath six feet of dirt. Someone opens the lid. I squint and pull the coarse blanket by my feet over my entire body. Get out, the voice says. Hillary's rough voice prevents me from distinguishing her dialect from the salesman's. I pull the blanket down. Peekaboo! Silence. I sit up into an empty room. See? That movie in which a guy wakes up in a bodiless world, but it all turns out to be a dream. See? That movie in which a guy comes out of a coma and can't find a doctor. It so happens that most people turned into zombies while he was asleep. The coffin salesman re enters the what seems to be a showcase room with a new customer, some widow, perhaps, or at least some chronic drinker, or chronic smoker, or chronic mourner, her face the semblance of distraught. I close the lid before either of them sees me. How may I help you? He asks her. It takes a few lines for me to understand the vernacular of a coffin salesman, through a thick sheet of oak, no less, and I enter mid-conversation. Now this piece here, this is a 1934 white sleepbox hatchback. Note the compartment by the feet, used to place mementos you wish to bury with the departed. This was the last model to come with the brass trim around the corners. The little old lady's sigh penetrates the oak, and her ensuing voice is even softer, a faint whispering at the end of the tunnel. I don't know, she says. How much? This has been one of the best-selling coffins in the last four years, and our stock is running low. $24,999. Supply and demand, baby. Footsteps carry my eavesdropping to another display. Voices fade in the vacuum at the end of the tunnel, blackness engulfing the beam of light that's carrying the sounds of the world into this box. 1988 Black Reston style. The thick plastic casing is conducive to killer acoustics. No pun intended. These cushions here at the head of the coffin? noise of Velcro. Come right off. The standard speakers will wear out in a few decades, so I recommend an upgrade. That is, if you care about whoever just died in your life. Our prices start at $89.95. There's a $21.50 installation fee. Would you like a warranty? One decade is $599.90. Two decades, $799.99. Studies show that most speaker malfunctions happen between Decade 1 and Decade 2, so I recommend a two-decade warranty. After all, you're saving quite a bundle by ensuring the departed's comfort an extra decade. I mean, isn't that why we're all here? To pay for the luxury of those that left us too early? A little old lady whispers, I'm not quite sure. I don't know what to do. The coffin salesman chuckles, and again, footsteps carry their voices farther and farther away, into that fading light. The coffin salesman nothing but a whisper, the little old lady inaudible.
This beauty just came in last week. 2009 Paris Hilton Box of Love. Note the coffin semblance of a Hilton Hotel. He lifts the lid, and my intuition tells me that the little old lady says something in reaction. Standard package comes with mini bar, three decades supply of fragrance, two six-inch plasma screen televisions, a spoiler, spinning hubcaps, a smooth, sleek finish, and silk blankets. And, of course, Paris Hilton's endorsement. She cares nothing more than to please those suffering from rigor mortis. And in my head, I imagine the little old lady shouting, I'll take it! But the voices float farther away, and I'm left staring at a faint dot of light on the horizon. I close my eyes, and when I reopen them, all I see is black. For a moment, I hold my breath and imagine the weight of air pushing my death box and me beneath the linoleum, beneath the crust, beneath the upper and lower mantles, through the outer and inner cores, and then back through the whole process until another paddle of air swats me. I imagine myself ping-ponging through dirt, passing the rotting corpses of Shakespeare, Mozart, Joan of Arc, Conan the Barbarian, Chris Farley, James Polk, Albert Einstein, Babe Ruth, Adolf Hitler, Amelia Earhart, Vladimir Nabokov, Walt Disney, and a whole bunch of other zombies I never met. This here, the voice says. I wake up blinded by light. End of the tunnel. Voices screaming in my ears. Standard 1998 brown oak coffin. This generic piece of crap most people choose to spend eternity in. And the little old lady is screaming compared to before. How much? The coffin salesman sighs and says, $3.99. No upgrades, no warranty, no rust proofing. Something rattles atop the lid. And then the little old lady asks, Can I see inside? The latch clicks outside the other side of the oak. And then a beam of fluorescent light and two vibrating voices overshadow the tiny spark and cause me to squeeze my own lid shut. And when my pupils finally adjust to the artificial light, that tiny spark is gone. And the little old lady is on the ground, silent. And the coffin salesman stares at me, jaw dropped. And I scream, She'll take it! Bells chime and advert our attention to the door. Hillary beams natural light into the what seems to be a showcase room and blinds the coffin salesman. Let's go, she shouts. I crawl out of the wooden tomb and can barely walk as my legs fill with oxygen-rich blood. When Hillary leads me outside, two tiny clouds break up and, again, I have to squint my eyes. And as we make our way to the car, I walk down that tiny tunnel from before, towards a spark of light that won't seem to fade, flicker, or shine any brighter as I approach it. So we're going to start off with Chris Hopkins' poem, Smoke and Whiskey. And the reason why we were so drawn to this particular poem was that it was such a beautiful snapshot 
of everyday moment of of a life. And in my opinion, I think some of the greatest poetry and some of the greatest writing can elevate those small, ordinary moments into something more, into something beautiful. And this particular poem does that incredibly well. So without any more of my rambling, here we go. This is Chris Hopkins' poem, Smoke and Whiskey. Smoke and Whiskey by Christopher Hopkins The warm rasp of bullet-tipped fingers on violin Of a nylon six-string hum And the brushings of a side drum Honeycomb light Nursing the mood and tempo between the walls We drink from short glasses Eyes of black in the electric glow time capsuled until the closing bells call for taxis and out with the currents of the crowd we go our watch fires of certainty flicking up their tongues to taste the night us smiling with the secrets of the womb we made there secrets we'll take home and place on the shelf like pine cones and look to when the weather comes too much. So now we're going to move on to uh, Jennifer DeBillis's poem, Say You Walk Away. And the reason why we were so drawn to this particular poem was the, um, I think I say this a lot, but I think this is what I'm what uh, what I'm drawn to and what the other editor is drawn to. Um, I think it's the beautiful language, the the very honest uh, and and gorgeous portrayal of difficult situations, um, and it doesn't shy away from sometimes nasty parts of of a person's life, of the writer's life or the speaker's life. I don't want to assume anything, um, and this this poem does that in a in a in a beautiful way. It you can almost sense that the speaker of the poem is trying to bring us through the process of of dealing with the situation at hand, um, and what mentally that the speaker has to go through to make everything okay. So, here we go. Jennifer DeBellis's Say You Walk Away. Jennifer DeBellis, Say You Walk Away. Say it's Friday night, or morning, or afternoon. What does it matter? Say you never dreamed this, but always planned it in that unspeakable, default way you do such things. Because safe. Because comfort. Because control. Say the sun-wrecked bedroom this morning said it all. Say it couldn't possibly say anything with its tongue tied in knots that were never strong enough to anchor you to one spot forever. Say the rocks you collected were your memories at first. Say they became words when you called them each by name to mark the labels stupid, idiot, slut, whore, nobody. Say you carried the labels in your pocket for years before reading about the Plath effect or Wolf and felt the full weight of your collected words. Say you called this one dad or friend or lover or husband 
What does it matter when the water's waist-deep who he is this time? Say you keep walking this time without looking back to a shore that never could hold you anyway, because worthless, because loser, because bitch are hollow words that greet the tide then rip out to sea. Say you walk away this time, promising not to look back. Don't look back, you say. The waves clapping the shore encourage another step, and another, and another, until the shoreline shrinks from your peripheral, and you ask yourself how much of this world ever existed. Say the horizon is chin-level now, and the half-drawn sun a mirror of your own reflection. Say it's dusk, or dawn, or whatever you need it to be to get through another day without letting go of the words you are sure have kept you afloat. No. Say today's the day you empty your pockets. Say today you decide to swim. The first poem that we have is from Gabriella Garofalo, and it doesn't have a title, which is very... Emily Dickinson-ish, and I like that. So you're not actually going to be hearing Gabriella's voice. You're going to be hearing from a surrogate reader, Sherry Kaplan, and you can go on the website, learn all about Sherry and Gabriella. But the reason why we were so drawn to this particular poem was it exudes a pure love of language, um, and it's, it's really seen by its unique word pairings that we really didn't... Re- haven't really seen before and and I really enjoyed it. I wasn't sure everything that was going on in this poem and and to be honest it didn't really matter because of how beautiful the language was and how interesting and unique it was. So, I hope you enjoy this Gabriella Garofalo's poem read by Sherry Kaplan. Darn so strange when trees climb up light. Winter shakes off men and you eating bread or dim end. Get on it, they too have red earth, knobbly trees, naive bodies that learnt, just white, just seed, the old taste of life. Soul, you really think you play nice. They say no, they say you write, loss and amnesia too many times. Of course the moon reads, but dare not say, they've just found some green on the road. She knows you listen to play it safe and be polite. No more fibs, she's right. Years and decades the word had exiled, in the flimsy white of the waves, water for trees and night hunters. Now she's out, she meets stark bodies, raw food, gives them the slip, then hides, earthquakes, reminders, and colors, in the attic. They scare her, see, she's used to white. Meanwhile you rattle on, isn't it the electric chair? A summer that hides from you, jitters and heat in the heart of the days. Oh well, no one minds. Men shake dust from tangled hair. Women slake stares and desire. The blonde smart scribe displays her limbs to the creatures, so foxes can rush and grip some stylish fair ladies, all for the best who knows them and their maddening white.' 